0: All right, you can open your Bibles to Acts 6. I think it would be a, a good place. Um, it would probably also be helpful if you had a bookmark on 1 Timothy 3, and so that we can go back and forth between the two. I think all three of those passages will be helpful. Acts 6 and 1 Timothy 3. In 1 Timothy, we'll be looking at the first 12 verses, and in Acts 6... We'll be looking at the first seven verses. Um, if you don't want to turn your Bible there, that's fine too. You have the passages in the, in the packet um, in, uh, in the back. On the back of the packet, on the absolute back page of the packet, I've added a few things. We talked last week a good deal about elders, and I've added a significant number of books. Basically, all of the ones with the word elders in it are the ones that I added, um, which I would commend to you as good books. Um, to read, to consider, to think through. Um, on on each of them, here, here's some things to know. Um, it dep- it, how do I say this? Sometimes it depends on the denomination as to how they apply elders in a congregation. And so some on this list might be Presbyterian, some may be Free Church, ev free or, or whatever, uh, and some might be Baptist, and so just just know that going in, that not all of them are going to see the application of elders in the exact same way. For instance, Cornelius Van Dam is an elder in a Presbyterian church, and so their application of elders is a little bit different um, than what I think is evident, but it's still a good um, survey, and his book in particular goes through the entire Bible, basically surveys the use of elders to the entire Bible, um, which is really helpful, and I think it's a really good treatment of it. and so we just need to straighten out his Presbyterianism, and that would be okay, I think, uh, beyond that. Um, so anyway, some of those books are, are really good, and I would commend them to you. Um, again, like, I, you know, I think with everything, uh, there's probably not any person out there that I agree with 100%, and that would be true of just about anybody, so it um, doesn't mean that they're not valuable or good uh, or things that we need to search through, so I would commend those to you. Like I said, last week we talked about one of the first office in the church being that of elder uh, and the purpose of the elders is, is, and is, as their other title would suggest, overseer. Their job is essentially both to pastor, shepherd, and oversee the congregation, oversee uh, all of the, the work of the church, the ministry of the church, the function of the church, uh, the direction of the church. They're to oversee all of those things, how they're used, both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, obviously in application in the Old Testament to the Jewish people, uh, in the New Testament to the church. The second type of office that we see in Scripture is that of deacon. And so uh, having spent a lot of time on, our, on elders and the, their role as pastor, it's helpful then to look at another office in the church, the second office in the church, which is that of deacon. Um, and so we can kind of see how the two are designed to function together. A lot of times you'll hear people ask the question uh, "Well, are, about, about your church, was it, is it elders or deacons? And, which is such a weird question, because how is the answer not both? <laughs> They're both there in the Bible. Um, and, but they, they obviously need to be put in their respective order as far as which one does which, which office, which one performs which task. Um, in the New Testament, obviously, we get the term deacon, which is a hard, uh, I'm going to be honest with you, is a little bit of a hard term. And the reason is because the term is literally means servant. Servant. And so you'll see this term used a bunch of times in reference to just serving. Um, the, even the apostles or the elders deacon the word. They serve the word to the church. So there's, there's, there's that use. But when it refers to an office, this is the other part of the complication of it, when it refers to the office of deacon, there's just very few references to the word deacon used in terms of an office. Uh, one time is, well, several times, uh, is in 1 Timothy 3, um, uh, 8 to 12, which is setting out the qualifications for deacon. And there it's used three or four times. I can't remember off the top of my head. And, um, and so the vast, the lion's share of the uses are there in First Timothy. Then once in Philippians 1, 1, where Paul just mentions, and to the deacons right? Like, he doesn't say anything else about it, just mentions them in, in passing. And then we get uh, Acts 6, 1 to 7, where we have this formation of what I think is the office of deacon, but it's the term. They're not called deacons at that point. It's, it's used in terms of a function. This is what they're going to do. They're going to they're deacon the tables. And so, Um, So I think it would be helpful if we uh, first read that and then think about the term deacon. Like I said, it means servant, um, which the literal definition of that word, and and, uh, this is not me making this up, uh, this is one who gets something done at the behest of a superior or is an assistant to someone. It's used quite frequently outside of the Bible in terms of a courier, UPS, deacons your package from one place to another, uh, deliverer of a parcel. Uh, so, it's a, it's a, it, it, anyway, it's a term that's used quite frequently. It's just not necessarily in reference to an office until you get to Acts 6, the beginning of the formation of these deacons. And so let's read that Acts 6, 1-7, to 7, and let's see this uh, process being, coming to uh, fruition. Acts 6, starting in verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. All right, so just in Acts 6, which I think is pretty, I'm pretty confident, is the formation of the office of deacon. Again, we don't have many mentions of this office until later on in the New Testament, but I think this is the initial formation of it. Um, we're going to see several things that pop up throughout the New Testament as qualifications for these men. You obviously see. Um, it, well, let, let's let's go ahead and also read First uh, Timothy three. Turn to First Timothy three, eight to twelve. managing their children and their households well. Now, this comes in First Timothy directly following the qualifications for elders, which I also want to read, so you can just see the parallels, kind of take in all the things that have been said about deacons. Now look at the parallels in First Timothy 3, 1-7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a, s- a snare of the devil. There's several uh, differences you notice in each of these. Deacons uh, are not held to quite exactly the same standard as elders. There's a few other different uh, qualifications that elders are given. A few of those are uh, deacons are not, uh, do not have to be able to teach. That's one of them. Um remember we talked about last week how the elders or the overseers are directing the Word of God to the people they uh, so qualifications being able to teach is you know kind of important for that task and deacons are not given that responsibility and so uh, that's that's obviously one that's not on the list there's also uh, a couple of things that are particular to deacons, um, but I think may also be implied with elders, at least some, to some extent. Um, deacons' wives are also subject to examination. In the middle part of the passage, he sort of turns to the, the wives of the deacons and subjects them to examination. But in the list of elders, there's managing his household well, right? Which both of them are, are called in one way or another To do that. And so you might say, even though that's not called out specifically of the elders, it seems to be definitely implied. There's also the subject uh, that the elders are to being a recent convert, in which deacons are not necessarily held to that kind of standard, although that may not necessarily be a bad idea it's not is right it's it maybe a prudent thing to go well we're going to make sure that this person is tested in fact you actually see that in the list of elder or in the list of deacons that they need to be tested and assuming that they're found blameless and it would stand to reason then that if one was a recent convert it would be maybe a little bit more difficult to hold to the test or at least be able to stand up under uh, much scrutiny so there's a couple of other things that are in there that I didn't list um, things like the, the elders obviously having to be hospitable, because as we talked about last week, it's it's we, we get kind of wrapped up in this prayer and ministry. It's very obvious that the apostles, the elders of the churches are doing a lot more than, than simply just opening the Word on Sunday morning and, and giving it to the people. Um, there's hospitality that's involved, having people over at their house, um, and things like that that are also part of the qualifications of elders. And so we get this sort of list, but outside of these two passages, it becomes a little bit difficult to kind of put our finger on exactly what's going on, but one thing that we, a few things that we can see just by going back to the Acts 6 passage, there's a few things that come up to the surface that we know right away, this is what deacons are specifically appointed to do here in Acts 6. They're nominated by members of the congregation based on their character. Look at verse 3 of Acts 6. Not only did we see this in the list of qualifications for a deacon um, in First Timothy, but we also see in Acts 6, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of, spirit and of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty. So we, we, we obviously see that even at the very beginning, at its inception, the disciples are calling on men of character. Now, why would that be? Why would there need to be men of character if the task that they're appointed to is going to be distributing food to these widows? Why would that be a... a what's that? They might steal the food. That's a That's a good... Yeah, you don't want them to steal the food, for sure. Survey says, that's probably the number three or four answer on, on the board. All right. Does anybody have a higher answer? Yeah, go ahead. There you go. They may not do it fairly. All right? So there's there's another. Survey says it's like the number two or three answer right there on the board. Yeah. Go ahead. That's absolutely true. The list of deacons. Uh, uh, so if you just go into the, the qualifications of, of deacons especially, is there one on there that you don't want? Is there one on there that you go... Man, I hope that's never said of me. Good grief. Uh, no, in fact, character is uh, obviously very important in Christianity. It's, it's just in the faith, in the church. But these aren't simply men of, of decent character. These are men of, that are well thought of in the congregation, that stand out, that you might even say are already serving the congregation in some way because they obviously... This is a large congregation that we're looking at here. And they obviously know these men, right? So it seems that it doesn't take them very long to come to the conclusion that these seven uh, should be put forward as, as deacon. So, but, you know, there's obviously some, some really important tasks that deacons do. And go ahead. Yeah, so yeah, there's, there's discernment that's going to be required on their behalf to actually steward this ministry that they've been tasked with to do, that they've been appointed to do. Um, when someone is appointed a task in ministry, and they're appointed some sense of leadership over that task, how do the people that are receiving ministry from them view them? There's an authoritative component to that. Anytime you're leading anyone, they view you authoritatively. Miss Lynn teaches Sunday school of my children. You've taught all my children, I'm pretty sure, right? Yeah. So um, that may not be a great thing for you. Uh, I'm sorry if it's not. But, <laughs> but they look up to you, don't they? They they you may not know they do, but they do. Your word carries a lot of weight to them, and it's the same for anybody that's appointed over any task of ministry. Um, They're seen authoritatively, and so what is it that, what kind of authority do we want being exercised over people that are serving in the church, that they're directing? We, we We would also assume, based on the function of deacons throughout church history, that um, that they're not just being only the ones that put the meat on the plate or the bread on the plate or whatever and give it to the widows, but that they're also helping others in the church body do the same and serve these, these widows and leading them in that. And so if that's the case, then their character is going to matter. It's going to matter a great deal in addition to all the other things that were on the board. Um, we also understand that this is a specific task that the elders of the church, which we identified last week, the uh, the disciples, the apostles, are performing the task of the elder inside the church at Jerusalem as it begins to form. So these elders, these apostles, are appointing these to a specific task. They even say in verse 3, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they're nominated by the congregation and then appointed by the elders for a specific to perform a specific task. Task. Now, what we also see subsequent to this passage is that throughout the, the next few chapters, some of these deacons are actually doing tasks that are beyond what they're appointed to do here, that just line up with their Christian duty. We, we'll see uh, uh, Philip go and baptize. We'll see Stephen preach to the—and the, be stoned, but we'll, we'll see him preach to the Jews— and lay out a message for them that is one of, really, of condemnation, for which they pick up stones and they, they kill him. And so we see these men, being of good repute and sound Christian character, actually doing things that are beyond the scope of being a deacon, just because they're, they're Christians. But they're, as far as this specific task, they're appointed to deacon the tables and serve uh, the widows, and they're appointed by the elders for this specific task. And third, we also see that they are enabling the elders to continue the ministry of the Word and prayer. Here's what I want you to pay attention to, at least in Acts 6, as far as Acts 6 goes. If you look at verse 1, you notice what the problem is right away. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, and when he says disciples, you're probably trained to think Matthew, disciples being the twelve. That's not what he's talking about here. The disciples that are increasing are the members of the congregation. The disciples of Christ are increasing at the preaching of the word and the ministry of the church. The disciples are increasing in number, and now all of a sudden they hit a roadblock. Now, ask yourself why, and so what, what happens here? Let's just get this out of the way. What happens? Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows we're being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists are Greek Christians that are really from a Hebrew background. They come from a Hebrew background they're, uh, but they're Greek Christians. So they are part of a kind of a dispersion, so to speak. They don't necessarily weren't necessarily originally located in Jerusalem and are now. And um, and so the Hebrews are getting their daily distribution. Maybe it's because of a language issue. Maybe it's be- who knows what the, the issue really is going on as for the reason, but they complain as part of the ministry that's going on in the church. Hey, we're not getting our daily distribution of food. Now, I want you to ask, why is it that the church is serving the widows? Why is that happening? Yeah, we're commanded to. As a response to the teaching of the elders from the church, the church has responded to that word by feeding widows. Now there's a, a neglect that's happening. So there's more widows than they've really accounted for, and they need to, uh, to get these together. So they appoint these men, they appoint them to this task to do this, and what is the result that happens in verse 7? So at this point in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, growth in the church is stunted the ministry of the church is stunted because there's a problem. The men are appointed to address that specific issue. And what is the result that happens after they begin to do that specific task? Look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So, so there's an impediment that's happening uh, the, the water from the fire hose is being channeled into a tiny little garden hose. And the disciples have been tasked with opening up the spigot so that it can flow more abundantly. And the function of the church, the ministry of the church, can continue. Right? Uh, what we're seeing in the early church and really throughout history, what we've seen in the church is that it's one of exponential growth. Uh, Bob. Don't hold me too strictly to my mathematics here, okay? I'm not a math magician. Um, But the elders, as they sow the word, they're planting acorns in a row. Those acorns grow and turn into oak trees, and the oak trees begin producing acorns that are innumerable, and those acorns drop into the soil. They begin feeding the widows, and... Those acorns are dropping into the soil. And now all of a sudden, there needs to be more people to tend this ground, right? The the work that the elders are doing, the work that the apostles are doing in preaching the word has spawned in the people a desire to do what is being preached. We want to accomplish these tasks. We know that they're before us. And as we do those things... Uh, we got some roadblocks. And so what needs to happen but that uh, some men need to be appointed to take care of some of these roadblocks for ministry. And what is the result that happens following that, but that the disciples continue? So the idea is that the deacons uh, enable the elders to continue the ministry of the Word and the administration of the ministry in the church so that that ministry can continue to flourish and grow exponentially rather than a steady drip, right? Rather than slow down to a drip. They want it to keep going. Go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Don't take a lesson from that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sure absolutely and it, you know this, this passage uh, floors me so m- many times because um, when I asked what what was the problem or, or why why were they doing this, why were they doing this ministry it seemed so obvious to everyone well, it's because we're commanded to do it and yet the elders of the church said we're not <laughs> and I I mean, every time I read that, I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> because it doesn't, <laughs> on the surface, that sort of, um, every pastor I know in America, uh, when presented with a task of feeding widows <laughs> to the poor would go, okay, wh- where, do, where do I go get the bread or whatever, right? And they say, uh, no, this is, we're training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Which I cannot tell you how difficult that actually is to put into practice. To realize that it's training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. People call the pastor a minister. Right? So when it comes to doing the ministry, who do they think and who does he think does it? Him! But it's training and equipping the saints. And why is that? So that the ministry of the church doesn't slow down to a drip. So that it grows exponentially because there's 150 people that are doing the ministry instead of one. Or even 12. So how does this, what does this actually uh, say to us? What what is this, what are the implications, I guess, I want to ask? Um, of this deacon ministry for us, as we read Acts 6, we really think about what deacons in our congregation are appointed to do and the task that lays before them. What does it actually inform in us or what are the implications for our church? Well, one, it should inform our selection of deacons, at the very least. When you're looking at deacons, you're looking for someone of character. And in a church, especially ours, one that has a foundation you know, built long ago, the deacons that we should be looking at are people that are, without being really appointed to the task, already deaconing. You're going to see them serving. I think there's probably a lot of qualifications that we want to place on them that are just not there. Probably want to place a, an, an extreme age. Well, they need to be older. they got to be some of the older people in the church. But instead, I think we're looking for character and people that are actually doing the work of service in the church already. These, it, by all accounts, in Acts 6, it doesn't seem like it takes them very long, at least, to identify these seven men. And I, I, I have to wonder, why do you think that is? Well, in the next few chapters, you see them preaching and teaching and correcting and boldly standing on the word of faith. And so I would imagine that in some capacity, they're already doing that in the congregation. Um, So it should inform our selection of deacons. A lot of times in churches, deacons um, are people that are kind of mainstays. They're people that have been around for a long time. And as we talked about last week, a lot of the reason for this is is a fault of pastors all across America in particular, uh, where the church is seen as a lily pad. You go to a small church and it's like, well, this is fine until a bigger church calls and the Lord calls me to the next place and goes. And so what happens is that that deacon body becomes the mainstays, the ones that aren't moving, the ones that are going to stay there to kind of steady the ship when that singular guy leaves the pastorate and goes to the next church. And that's not really what is required of deacons. What's required here is not a board of deciders, it's a board of doers. People that facilitate the work of ministry so that it can flourish and grow and spread and be fast moving. But second, I think it also says that we should support the deacons. Um, there this is a, a how, how do we do that? Um, if you were to see seven deacons step up and go, "We're going to serve the tables," are you going to be the one to say, "I'll help"? What, where do you want? What do you want me to do? What can I do to help your job? In um, uh, was somebody, were you going to ask a question, Vicky? Oh, I thought you had your hand up. Okay, uh, I was about to call you down to the front, baptize you right here. Uh, so, in in our church, even as of just a couple of weeks ago, we started divvying up responsibilities within the deacon body um, so that uh, I've kind of got them listed here just so that you are aware of what some of our our deacons will be doing um, on into the future for at least the next year or maybe more. Um, For one, uh, a setup, basically that's tear down, put up, set up the baptistry if we have baptism, uh, the fellowship hall for feast and things like that. Jeremy Hoggle, Philip Heineman will be doing a lot of that. Um, special care, David Maxwell, Joe Ferris, Richard Thomason, just keeping track of people, contacting people either that are uh, in the hospital, that are uh, in, you know, I- extensive care or long-term care, uh, people that are um, uh, shut-ins, things like that. Um, keeping track, regularly calling, regularly visiting um, these three deacons. Um, also greeting is another one of the things that they'll be doing fairly regularly. So. When, you, when one of them comes and asks you, hey, you would make a really good greeter, you know, do everything you can to support that ministry. Either do it or find somebody who can do it in your stead. Um, what's that? What a plug! Um, building and Grounds. Randall Mills has been doing this for, all, for a while now, and uh, he's really good at it. And so uh, this is one... Um, I'll just say right now building grounds is one that that's it's gonna take a while, okay? To just get one all the things under our feet and Figure out because there's more than just surface level things that you're looking at you're looking at you probably see ceiling tiles that are drip drip drippy and uh, Or things like that. There's a lot of things. Let me just assure you you don't see (laughs) 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 Yeah, Uh, Yes, so there, there's a, a lot of those things. We have some rather costly things that may be coming down the pike uh, a, as well, which are never fun, and they're not glamorous, and when you spend all the money, it's like a new set of tires on your car or shingles on your house. You'd spend all the money, and you're like, what did it do? I don't really see anything. Well, isn't that pretty, you know, for the first week, and then it's like, you know, all the little nubs on the tire have worn off, and it's just like a regular tire at that point. Um, so it's kind of like some of those things, and it's going to take us a while to get all the things, figure out how we're going to do this and what order we're going to address them in. But uh, Randall Mills uh, is going to be spearheading that effort. Plus, he's got a committee underneath him that's going to help as well um, handle that responsibility. And, of course, Robert Maxwell has been doing multimedia probably since you were six, four, five, something like that. What was it, What's it been? Oh, just... Well, at least since I've been here, Robert Maxwell has been deaconing that booth uh, and doing a great job at it. And let me just tell you, let me just put in a special little plug here. During the whole pandemic thing, none of that would have ever got off the ground. Eight weeks of being shut in with the little live streaming and all that kind of stuff, none of that would have even happened if Robert Maxwell hadn't headed up that whole deal. So go ahead. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I've, I've told them, you know, it, it makes my heart happy when they kind of spearhead not only the, that particular area of our church, but when they recruit people to help them. So I love it when I see Robert sitting in the pew on Sunday with his wife, and there's like a team of you know, people back there in the booth doing that, that ministry, which is really awesome. Yeah, they're, they're yeah exactly. So, so just imagine now, let's flip it and let's say, you know, people come and they're like, we can't hear you on Sunday, which I can't imagine anybody ever saying that to me, but if they did, we can't hear you. And I'm thinking, well, I guess I got to get a microphone and I got to do, I got to run, figure out how to run a soundboard. Just imagine one person, one elder going back and forth to the sound booth or having to manage all of the erosion or water retention or all those kinds of things in our building and grounds or, um, or you know, or being the only one driving hitherto and yon to see to visit people in hospitals or call, making calls to people or things like that um, or setting up tables and things. So all of these things uh, help ministry. They also enable the body to emulate them and begin to kind of serve in those capacities as they're recruited and, and appointed to those tasks. So... Um, Now, more recently, there's kind of been a, a, let's say, a minority report, contrasting interpretation, contrasting read on the deacon's responsibility in the church. Some have seen, uh, whereas the elders, or they would kind of maybe hopefully put it this way, and I'm trying to be as charitable as I can here, um, where the elders and the overseers are tasked with the preaching and teaching and the prayer ministry of the church, um, the deacons oversee the so-called uh, business of the church. And you'll often hear that kind of word floated out there in churches. Well, you know, the, the elders handle that, or maybe just the elder or the pastor or whatever, he handles that part of it, and the deacons over here handle the, the quote-unquote business of the church. And I think that interpretation, so, so let me back up and just say, this would be kind of, if I was to visually depict it, this would kind of be like what it would be. You'd have the elders on one side preaching, teaching, praying, deacons on the other side, maybe finances, business matters might fall under that, and the congregation kind of falls under the auspices of both um, pillars, if you will, or both offices. You've, got, you've heard this before or kind of been around this sort of idea before. The first problem with that, I think, is that it's nowhere in the Bible. And that that's the biggest, we could probably do a full stop there, but that's not the only reason, but it's nowhere in the Bible, and as we see in Acts 6, the ministry of the deacons is appointed by the elders. So it's not appointed by the congregation even. The congregation nominates and puts these men forward, but it's the elders that actually appoint these men to a task. Um, and so I think that's a, that's, those are important distinctions to make in the formation of deacons. First, that the elders appoint them. And that they s- limit the scope of the task that they're given. We want you to serve the tables for the widows. Uh, so that's, that's important. It's, uh, that idea is nowhere in the Bible. It's not mentioned anywhere. Um, yeah, um, which that's what we're, we're getting to. Let me get to the last point, which will address that. Um, so second, their titles would be really misleading if that were the case. The title of overseer is an overseer of the church, an elder of the church. The title of servant is a servant of the church. That's exactly what he's, what he's doing. Um, and the last is the deacon role would become quite nebulous because there's really what, what is the business of the church, quote-unquote, that isn't the ministry of the church. When he says in verse 4, if you look in Acts 6, this gets to Ronnie's question. He says in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The ministry of the word is the ministry of the church. That is what the church has been given, is to administer the word to the world. That's our task. And so the, the elder's responsibility is to administer the word in the church and ensure that it's carried out in every capacity. So that's why in the previous chapter, you want wind back the clocks to Acts chapter 5, people are selling as a response to the preaching of the, of the preachers in the church, people are selling their property and they're bringing bags of cash. And where are they laying it? At the feet of the deacons, which would be the business of the church? That's not what they're doing. They're bringing it to the feet of the elders of the church who are then distributing it. When later we get to the Acts chapter 15, and they've taken up a collection in the churches for the church at Jerusalem because it's under famine. And Paul and Silas and others are going back to the church at Jerusalem. Where are they taking the money? They're taking it to the elders at the church at Jerusalem. And the reason is because there is no aspect of the church that isn't its ministry. And if you've got business that isn't impacting the ministry of the church, it doesn't need to be done. That's how you qualify ministry that the church should be doing ministry that it should not be doing. So, when you come to things that are business-related, let's say, let's give an example. Let's say taking on debt. Let's say building a building. Bob, do those have to do with the ministry of the church? Yeah. Um, There is absolutely no aspect of our money that isn't governed by the Word of God. That should not be directed by those that are teaching the word. So, what we have actually as a picture of how the church works, albeit slightly more complex picture. At the top, you have Jesus, who is the head of the church always. How does Jesus lead his church? Through his word. That's how he leads his church, through his word. Who is the one responsible for wielding the word to lead the body? The elders. That's the task that they're given, is taking the word of God and shepherding the church with it and setting the parameters for all the ministry that it does, giving the implications of the scripture to the people so that They can respond to it and want to do the ministry, which is why they're feeding the widows. If you've got the elders up there preaching, I don't know, uh, Darwinian evolution, survival of the fittest, is the response of the church going to be to feed the widows? No, they're by definition not the fittest. But they're responding to the word, and so the elders are the ones that say, now, let's open up the floodgates and let's appoint some people to a task to do this specific thing. And so they do that. So they teach, they obviously model, the elders are held to a character uh, qualification, and they exercise oversight, hence the name overseer, of the entire congregation. And so then the congregation is the recipient of their teaching, of their modeling, of their oversight. But then from behind, the deacons are coming along and also tasked with modeling. Obviously, there's a character qualification that's listed there. And service. They're kind of the first responders of the word, if you will. The ones who receive the word, who are already foremost in the congregation's mind and are first responders. And what do people do when they see the deacons putting out the fire? They rush along and grab it into the hose, right? So they're Modeling that they're not only modeling character, but they're also modeling service. And so when you have these two working together Leading the congregation shepherding the congregation governing the ministry of the of the word as it works its way out in the congregation uh, From top to bottom and the deacons coming along and actually being the first responders of that preaching and serving As a response the congregation not only has people to emulate But is in a sheep pen of sorts their souls are watched over and cared for and the ministry of the church can go on and flourish questions go ahead Uh uh-huh yeah I'll, I'll tell you, yeah. Uh, so if you she, her question was she was, she was reading um, some, somewhere on a church, some, some big church in Tennessee that had female deacons. And the question was, how did they get that? And the response from the church was, on the one side, uh, in Romans 16, I believe it's verse one, I think it's 161, Phoebe is listed as a deaconess of the church, a a servant. Again, this is another one of those complex interpretations. Is it it a deaconess or is it just a servant of the church that happens to be female? Um, And then in 1 Timothy, so if you look at the 1 Timothy passage, this is the the thing that comes into question in a lot of the uh, interpretations of various churches. Uh, Verse 11 It says, their wives. That's the translation we have, their wives. Literally, it says, women. Uh, Oh, 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. You see that? 1 Timothy 3, verse 11. It says, their wives, likewise, must be dignified. Um, He literally, the literal word he used says, the women. Which is, I, I wish there was another word, maybe that we used, <laughs> so that we could have a lot more clarity. What's that? Yeah, yeah, similar deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so as I said, as I said, there will be, there will be there will be slightly different interpretations of how some of these things flesh out from church to church. And um, some are quite convinced that verse 11 should be taken to be the women, meaning the the female deacons, uh, likewise must be dignified. So basically he's saying all those things we just applied to the men, likewise to the women. And so their reason for kind of swept being persuaded in that direction. Maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons for being persuaded is you don't see that with elders. Elders, historically, I mean, always throughout, I mean, even there's other passages outside of Timothy that will refer to the elders uh, being men, given the task of teaching and, and shepherding. And then when you get to deacons, he kind of flips the formula a little bit and has it a little bit differently, so some churches are going to say no. He's talking about the wives of the deacons being subject to to scrutiny, and then other churches are going to say uh, the the those are he's talking about the female deacons. And Phoebe is kind of the backup as like as an example of that. Here's Phoebe in Romans 16. Um, well, it, it it is, you know. So what's your stance on? That? Yeah. Based off, the word, based off what the word says. Uh, so, yeah, be careful. Be Here's, here's the deal. Like, the way deacons flesh their, themselves out in the church doesn't matter. All right? I know you're going to be like, wait a minute, what? It, it a person, let's say a female, who takes a plate, puts food on it, and gives it to a wheelchair-bound person at the potluck and puts it in front of them, what have they just done? They just deaconed that table. So it's really a question of who do the elders call forward and pray over. Now, I probably would lean towards that he's talking about the wives of the deacons here. Um, that that's probably my 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 where I would lean that that's probably what he's saying only because of Acts six that's who they call out. Um, that would kind of be the thing for me, but I would say it's probably within the realm of possibility that they're recognizing women who do things in the church as deaconesses whether they have prayed on them and f- prayed uh that sounded really bad prayed for them uh in front of the congregation uh man sometimes you say words and yes yeah so that's another reason yeah that, that's another reason why I would lean in that direction too is it seems to suggest that it's um, that, that at the very least they're a one woman person and now they would come back and they would say on the other side of that well he says they're women the women likewise meaning flip that the other way and it would apply to the women as well um, so <laughs> 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 so that that yeah no it's okay you don't mean it um so i i think that that scene that to me that's the reason i would probably lean that direction but honestly each each church is i think going to have perhaps a little different take there it's not a i don't think it's a at the end of the day i don't think it's a deal breaker in terms of I think as long as they can take that, the text and they can understand what is being said and they, they um, feel like that's justifiable with the text itself, you know, I don't have a really a dog in the hunt. I think it's, it's been debated for a long, long time, and, and that, I, I think that's perfectly okay, and I think each church should be able to decide that for themselves. Yeah. Go ahead, David. How do we well, that's a, another really good question. Um, this is another one that has been debated amongst congregation after congregation. Hi- so, okay, let me, let me, ref- let me frame, let me frame, in, invariably, when people ask questions, there's a whole history going on there and a lot of, a lot of knowledge. So the question was, uh, how do we define the husband of one wife? And this is another one of those issues, just like the female deacons, where, which each congregation is going to, is, is maybe going to take a little bit differently. One way people see it is that husband of one wife. He, the literal words he uses is "one woman man," which is maybe I would I would probably wish for a little bit more clarity there uh, if if I were. Well, I just say I would have questions. Um, so the question is whether a one woman man means he's faithful to the woman that he's married to. In other words, he's not one polygamist. He's not uh, having affairs. He's not uh, a notorious uh, philanderer. Um, And so he is faithful to the woman that he has. The other would ask, is he he married to the one woman? And that's it. He's never been married to anyone else. Um, Look, I'm going to just be honest with you. There are some issues and questions that are created either way you go. So, you, you have the one question, first of all, if he's a one-woman man, does he have to be married? Um, that's, another, that's, that's a question, right? Um, second, um, and, I, and I'm not saying necessarily they're a great answer, <laughs> I'm just saying this is one of the questions, is does he have to be married? As far as the elders, they're given the same qualification, and, um, and there are several elders, that in, at least in the first church, that are not married. And it doesn't seem that any church after that has ever taken that position that they have to be married. Second is, let's, 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 let's set up a scenario where a person has, um, prior to coming to Christ, has maybe had different kinds of relationships, all right? But coming to Christ, they repent of those, they follow biblical fidelity, maybe they marry a, a lady, maybe both of them came to Christ. They realize their error, though they've been married three or four times maybe, They've realized their error. They're committed to each other. Is that person held to the sins prior to conversion? Um, so right, but like we're gonna we're gonna make decisions based on prudence, right? We're gonna go. Uh, well, I think I think it's I think that's fine in that situation. That's not what we have. We have a divorced person who prior to conversion was divorced, and now once converted, is faithful to the woman. So. Um, Again, I think it's a very similar issue. I think a, a church needs to, with as much wisdom and prayer as they can muster, look at the text, determine what they feel like the text is, is saying here, what the meaning of that text is, justify it, and, and stick with it. Be faithful to it. Sure. Right, right, right. Right, yeah. So, so, you know, y- when you get this picture here, it, it, there's all kinds of issues that we get in churches. Uh, what's the qualification, biblical qualification, of a Sunday school teacher? Anybody? Anybody? What's the biblical qualification for a Sunday school teacher? Anybody that's a warm body, right? Oh, this is a lot of hands. Right, well, okay. But, but. <laughs> so, so when we, we, d- we develop, we develop positions within the church, and my point is, we have to be really careful about that. So, James 3, so it, there, there comes question lots of questions, so I'm going to introduce a couple of them. Um, questions start to rise up. When it comes to this, the role of elders—they're teaching. It seems like they have a lot of responsibility. Good grief! Uh, so, who holds these people accountable? Well, one—let me just say—they can be held accountable by the congregation. Paul is going to tell Timothy, "Don't admit a charge against an against an elder except on the account of two to three witnesses." Right. So, that implies that the congregation has some say into how this whole thing functions. And they, they do, all right? And when there's an elder acting out of bounds, then the congregation can step in and say, this is what we're, this specific sin we're charging him with, very similar to the way that Matthew 18 outlines it for a member of the congregation, right? So an elder can be a, a judged, let's say, or excommunicated even that way. But look at what James says in James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not only that, but in Hebrews where he says, Submit to your leaders. They have charge over your souls as ones who will give an account. So the point that James is making, the author of Hebrews is making, many others are making is, yes, elders have a tremendous responsibility. They have to steward the word that is written down at the behest of Jesus to be given to his church. They have to steward that and execute the ministry of the word in the congregation from top to bottom. And so you might think, well, who died and made them king? Well, nobody, first of all. Someone died, and he's the king, all right? So the way it works is his word shapes the church. Elders are stewarding that, and who is it that they're chiefly going to answer to? Well, the higher you get up the ladder, the closer you get to Jesus, who's at the end of the ladder. He's the one you're going to answer to. I I mean, when it comes to a, a lot of churches I've seen want to protect themselves from overbearing, overly dominant leaders in the church. The problem with that is the Bible didn't tell you to do that. There are times where leaders abuse their authority. The Bible also gave us recourse into how we address that. I've seen churches make prohibitions. This might be okay. No, There's no rocks in this building, are there? There's churches that will make prohibitions on deacons and elders in regards to alcohol. And what is the, the response? Well, the response is because they could abuse it, after all. Is it in there that we should prohibit them in that capacity? doesn't say anything about that. What does it say? Well, you should avoid drunkenness and addiction to wine. And what is the recourse that the church has in the event that an elder or deacon abuses alcohol? Confronting him in sin on the account of two or three witnesses. And if he doesn't listen to them, bring it before the church. And if he doesn't listen even to the church body, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Church discipline. Well, if we don't want to enact church discipline, then we just prohibit. Because that's the easiest way, right? Well, if the church just reads the word and just does what it says, it has all of those things built into it. It's just a church body being faithful to the word that's put in front of them. Other questions? Well, when it comes to a, when it comes to a, cer- a particular set of issues, there are, there's need for wisdom, there's need for interpretation, there's need for counsel, there's need for men and women, for that matter, who put their nose in the book and read, and study, and think, and sometimes sit there and look out a window, right, just to to think and consider, uh, the weight, and, and the, you know, we've had a couple of these issues already come up in deacon meetings, where we literally just had to sit and talk about how we handle some of these issues, um, with divorce, with all kinds of other things, what, what, should we do? What is the most prudent thing to do? What is the most faithful to the word, as we see it right now? All those things have to be balanced, and um, and so, th- but that's part of the reason why the elders are given the task that they're given, is because there's some that don't have the proclivity for studying the word day in and day out, and afforded that responsibility. And a congregation is basically saying, the word of God preached to us, given to us, and taught to us, is so important that we're going to dedicate even portions of our budget to make sure that we have people that are there that are tasked to do that. And my family is certainly great for that. But others that are, that are tasked with also leading in similar capacities, to carefully consider the word, give it to the people, so that we can do the work of ministry that he's put us here to do. Some things, Yes. They're gonna be different from congregation to congregation. They're not all gonna be exactly the same. Between us and the Presbyterians, we'll get into much later. There's there's differences in the way that we're even governed in regards to elders, d- regards to the congregation, regards to baptism. We're gonna see it differently. It doesn't mean we we're not brothers. Doesn't mean we're not both looking at the word. Let's close there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time to come together and read your word, study it, think through it we pray for the outworking, the outpouring of your word to your people. That as we hear your word, as we respond to your word in ministry, as we see to the ministry of the word uh, as it's executed in this church body and outside the walls of this church, I pray you would burden each of the members of this church with a responsibility for ministry, carrying on the ministry of the word, Doing the work of ministry as the word is preached. Pray that you would burden each and every one of us with particular areas where we need to be active. I pray you give us the legs to do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.